International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 15. Tools for Turning the Story. Part 1. One of the things by now I hope you're starting to understand <coughs> is that the audience not only see every detail of the film, but they see it symbolically. Okay, in other words, they say, ah, farmhouse, okay, or ah, trainers, okay, or ah, Gucci shoes, okay. They're like detectives in the front of your film. They don't know they are, but they're looking at everything and saying, this is a clue. To, to see something symbolically means the audience are seeing everything as clues. Okay? Clues telling you about character, clues telling you about the world of the story. Okay? Ah, he's an advertising exec. Okay, ah, you know. Okay, lives in this nice flat. Okay. Ah, ah. Uh, they've, the wallpaper on the child's room, or the, the painting on the child's room, it's like a Magritte, okay? The audience knows this is not an accident, everything's chosen. And by the way, it's not. I mean, they spent a fortune in Kramer versus Kramer. They have one of the greatest cameramen in the world, Nestor Almendros, who has won lots of Oscars. I mean, he won an Oscar for Days of Heaven, okay? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. And Almendros spent so much time and energy making, making that flat look ordinary. <coughs> so to actually make it look ordinary, there's a whole lighting rig on the roof. There's, there's, you wouldn't believe what's, what's going on. And it's not an accident that the, wall, the walls on the boys' room is painted like that or decorated like that. And the audience subconsciously know that. They know that everything is chosen. Now, unfortunately, in many films, it's not really chosen. It just happened. <laughs> but the audience is sort of desperately trying to make sense out of this universe. We also were looking this morning at exposition, at information, and we were seeing that far from being afraid of exposition or information, the good writer relishes it and also respects it. Okay, because information can be used to create suspense. It also is, is, a, is a big weapon in turning the story. Because remember, what is it that offers your hero choice? It's new information. New information is what makes it possible for your hero to make a different choice. Without new information, he can't make an informed new choice. Do you understand? So information is, you have respect for it. Um, it's part of the trinity. In other words, information plus conflict equals drama. Okay? So you don't, you don't say information is, is, is rubbish. You just you give it its true place. We were also talking about um, surprise and how surprise in a, a match-up against suspense will just get beaten up. And, you know, surprise is a minor uh, tool compared to suspense, okay? And um, that is true, and yet there are conventions in, in certain of the genres that you, you must look at. So, for example, surprise, um, cheap surprise, surprise that cheats is a... Is, is, is right there at the heart of the murder mystery. So Agatha Christie is full of, her endings are full of cheap surprise. They cheat. Uh, 
The problem with that, when you put that on film, it's very hard for film to stomach. Do you remember I said what you get away with in a book or a novel, okay, or a thriller? But once you start to put that on film, the, the structure, the logic of it starts to stand out, and the audience say, we didn't know anything about that. That's just come from nowhere. That's just totally arbitrary. That's deus ex machina. That's the gods coming down in the machines and saying, and that's, of course, exactly what happens in Agatha Christie, by and large. The gods come down in the machine and say, and they tell you some new information that you never had. So the audience say, we never had that information. How could we? And they get very upset in film, okay, because you've cheated. So they don't like that. On the other hand, there are certain genres, like the thriller, that thrives on cheap surprise. This is a staple element of the thriller, cheap surprise, okay? So you can use that or not. In other words, you can subvert that and have a thriller where there's not too much cheap surprise, if you want to. But if you use cheap surprise in the thriller, the audience don't mind. They know that genre. They know that the, the genre is full of cheap surprise. So you can get away with it more than you could get away with cheap surprise in drama. Okay? So at the point where you start to know genre, then at that point you'll, you'll start to understand how to use it. Again, in the murder mystery, <coughs> th there's a convention of flashback. You know, so at the, uh, at the end of every Agatha Christie on murder she wrote, usually there's a... F uh, it's like a flashback for two-year-olds, you know? Usually there's this ludicrous flashback where it flashbacks to, to actually how the murder took place or what happened, and, and it's like flashback by numbers, you know what I mean? Flashback for idiots. And uh, so if you're doing a murder mystery, you definitely want to subvert that convention. It's not necessarily that you'd want to get rid of it. You might do. But certainly you'd want to take it on. I mean, you don't want to be stuck in a convention whereby you do flashbacks for idiots, you know what I mean? Okay, I was going to talk to you about tools uh, for tools for turning the story, and in, these are in no particular order. Um, they're just uh, you, you must know them. Okay, um, one the jargon for the first one is called setups and payoffs. Have you ever heard this jargon? Setups and payoffs. Okay. Okay. And and what I'm going to try and teach you is not just what they are, but how to do it well. Okay. Um, Setups and payoffs. Okay. Setups and payoffs basically are um, exactly what, what they look like. In other words, uh, you plant something in your film, in a scene in your film, which is perfectly innocent, perfectly normal. And then further down the film, you pay it off. It actually explodes. It's like a bomb you've planted, and it explodes, OK? Um, the trick is this. If you put a big label on it saying setup, the audience just say, oh, this is a setup. You watch. You watch. You watch. This bomb will explode in 20 minutes or and they're totally unimpressed, okay? If it's too slight, they don't notice it. So when it actually explodes, they say, well, what that, was that all about? Where was that set up? So it's a delicate balance, this. How do you uh, set something up in a way that doesn't, isn't crudely labeling it, but on the other hand, set it up in a way that isn't so slight that the audience don't notice it, okay? And the answer is, is that the setup must have another function other than just being a setup. It must be absolutely intrinsic 
to the scene in which it occurs dramatically. In other words, it's not simply a setup, it is actually an integrated part of the scene in which it occurs. There is a brilliant, brilliant, I mean, one of the, if you want to talk about great, great uh, writing in terms of setups, okay, you go to something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, okay? And you have a scene in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where Jack Nicholson tries to rip out the water fountain. Do you remember this? And he can't do it. And it's an incredible turning moment in the film. They all get depressed because he's their leader, their hero, and he can't rip out the water fountain. And, and this sort of depression, this malaise starts to settle on the group. It's a turning moment in the film. And then at the end of the film, when he's been lobotomized, okay, the big impassive Indian who's been a follower, who's been a reactor, who's never been an active, he goes to the water fountain, okay, and he's huge, and he rips it out, and he hurls it through the window, and he escapes. And um, this is just, at the level of setups and payoffs, this is genius. And why? Because you've done a whole series of things, okay? One is that the setup is intrinsic, not only to the scene, but to the whole narrative line on the drama, okay? You, it's, it's actually been a, a key moment on the narrative line. Okay. Two, it's become a symbol. You see, not only does the Indian escape and, and in that sense throw off the life he's in and say, enough of this institution, <laughs> you know, that water fountain forever belongs to Jack Nicholson, even though he couldn't pull it out. What the film has done is it made it forever his. So, do you remember I said how heroes have to impact the world around them? Not only uh, the, 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 like their brother, or what, but the more they impact the world around them, the bigger the self-revelation, the bigger the, the growth you're dealing with. So, so um, again, I'm not, I don't care what you think about the film. I'm actually talking about uh, a, a moment of genius at the level of craft and of writing in a setup and a payoff, okay? Setups and payoffs can be everything from the tiny to the huge. So the water fountain's a massive, um, a massive setup, okay? It can be tiny, you know, it's, the, uh, it's like uh, conflict. Variety is the spice of life here. Um, what you have to understand what happens in the audience, though, is that when, once you pay off a setup, the audience mentally run back through the film, to, uh, once you pay it off, from them to, to the actual setup. And if it's been brilliant setup or if it's been powerful, they're thrilled. It's part of their moral growth is actually the paying off of the setup. It's, it's a way of turning the film. It's a way of actually uh, getting the audience to see something in a completely new way. Okay. All right. Now, there's a, there's a particular type of uh, setup and payoff that is in the jargon known as foreshadowing. Okay. And this is just a setup and a payoff, but it's called foreshadowing because it's designed to deal with a specific problem. Okay. And the specific problem it's designed to deal with is the suspension or the attack on credibility. So at its crudest, a, a film I often quote because it's such a crude example of it, 
is there's a film called Outrageous Fortune with Shelley Long and Bette Midler, I think it is. Yes, Bette Midler and Peter Coyote. So, um, and in this, down the front of the film, uh, Shelley Long is doing ballet. And for some obscure reason, what they're doing in their ballet class is doing leaps and measuring the leaps, okay? And um, in the ballet class, they do these leaps, and Shelley Long does a leap that's about seven foot beyond anyone else, okay? And the audience who look at everything say, sniff, sniff, sniff. This is a setup, okay? This is a very crude setup. Uh, I mean, if it had been seven inches, okay, but it's like, you know. Um, and sure enough, at the end of the film, uh, she's being chased by uh, the nemesis character, by the, by the opponent, uh, on these huge bluff stacks of, of rock. And, and she comes to a point where she has to leap across the stack, you know, about 25, 30 feet or whatever it is. Uh, and of course, she leaps across and lands, and the villain tries to leap and he falls. This is a setup and a payoff. Uh, it's a foreshadowing. The whole, what you attempt to do with shadowing is, foreshadowing is they know this will stretch credibility if this happens. So they try and set it up early on, earlier in the film, so that when it occurs, you say, oh yeah, she can leap seven feet beyond everyone else. Of course she can leap. And so it goes on. Okay. Um, there's a, a better use of foreshadowing in The Karate Kid, okay? Not great use of it, sort of average <coughs> use of it. It, it passes, it, do, it, it passes, it, it, it doesn't fail, you don't flunk it, okay? But uh, what happens is um, Mr. Miyagi early on uh, teaches him, he says, that, he says to him, now there's, I'm gonna teach you this one position called the crane position, which is unbeatable if you do it properly. You know, you've got, you've got to do it properly. And so sure enough, when his leg's broken in the fight at the end of the film, of course, what's going to save him the crane position if he can do it properly? You know? and, and that's okay. You know? so, what, what shall we do? Six out of ten? You know. Okay. But the great uses of foreshadowing, okay, are um, in, say, like Rain Man. And in Rain Man, they have a situation whereby you have to go to the, to the end to actually understand the process of what they're going to try and do. They are going to have a situation whereby towards the end of this film, or quite a long way into this film, Raymond, this autistic savant, is going to be dressed up in a flash suit in Las Vegas, <coughs> uh, reading into six decks of cards, okay? So here is Raymond reading into six, de six decks. And what, what you have to set up, okay, is to foreshadow this, to say, because suddenly if you're in Las Vegas and there's this Raymond reading into six decks, you know, of cards, then the audience is going to say, what? So what they do is they foreshadow this several times in the film, and that's why it's brilliant. And each foreshadowing is totally natural to the action and is very important for the relationship between the brothers. Okay, so uh, this is a brilliant use of foreshadowing. The first time, you remember, is, is when they're having breakfast together and uh, he's suddenly realizing something's up because Raymond looks at the little tab on, on, on the waitress's, you know, 
her name, and then he tells her her address. And, and Tom Cruise in the, doesn't know what's going on. And of course, the night before, he's given him the, the, direct, the, the telephone directory to read. So he just looks at the name and tells her where she lives. And he says, have you memorized that? He said, no, no, I've only got up to whatever it is, G, you know what I mean? <laughs> you had to go to sleep sort of thing. And he starts to realize, and then just as they're about to walk out, he, he, he wants a toothpick or whatever, and the toothpicks drop, do you remember? And he just looks at the floor and he says, uh, 246. And, and Tom Cruise just says, well, how many are in there? She said, 250, you know. And he says, nice try, you know. And she said, well, there's four left in the box. And this is foreshadowing its best. In other words, this is, this is just happening in the middle of life. There's no big deal about it. It's, it's, it's not, uh, the audience don't think, it, the audience aren't thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be paid off in Las Vegas. They're not thinking, they're just, because what's going on here, you have to understand, is if someone said to you, okay, write me a film that deals with autism, and not just autism, but autistic savant, you know, You'd say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, here's a number of deals here. One is, you're saying, I have to educate the audience in this before we can even have the drama. And you're saying, yeah, that's right. In this drama, not only do you have a drama, you have to do a whole process of education where this audience who know nothing about this at all, you have to teach them what it is. Okay? And do you remember how you teach people in the visual media? You show, don't tell. You don't sit there saying, what it means to be an autistic savant is this. Okay, you don't do that at all. You go, let's get on with this. Let's do it visually. Let's do it dramatically. So this is the first lesson here. We're having it right here at breakfast in the cafe. And we put them together. We put the telephone book together with the toothpicks. And we're just saying to people, this is not the world you and I live in. This is the world of numbers and figures. And Raymond's language is what? Numbers. He doesn't speak like you and I. He speaks numbers. Okay. And a great, um, a great miss, I think, in this film, in a way. It's a great film, but they, they miss things. And I was at the end. They use the photographs of his worldview and so on, and uh, its intricate patterns. And it, it, it's actually it starts to show you how he sees life. They could have used those photographs throughout the film to keep teaching us about the world he saw. It doesn't matter. It's a quibble. Anyway, um, so we, we, we do this. The next thing is the doctor. Do you remember we go to the doctor? And he does some number crunching from the doctor, and everyone's just standing there. <laughs> and it's all foreshadowing, but it's all part of the plot. It's all part of the drama. It's all part of... And then finally, do you remember the jukebox where he goes in? And he's memorized the whole jukebox. So he says, like, M3, and he, says, and he tells him what it is. And finally, we start to get to because Tom Cruise now starts to have him do some card tricks. He's fine. And it was the foreshadowing. Finally, we start to see. But it's natural. In other words, it's a brilliant use of foreshadowing. It's a brilliant use of setup and payoff. It's not the audience aren't sitting there saying, he's going to pay this off. The audience are just saying, good grief. This is what, autism, this is what it means to be an autistic savant. You know? They're not thinking we're going to have a big payoff. Brilliant, brilliant use of, of, of foreshadowing. Okay. Curiosity. We've already seen that the audience looks at every detail in a film and they look at it for clues. They're all the time looking, they're asking questions, they're saying, okay, 
They're taking notes, they're saying, yeah, okay, so he lives in a penthouse, okay. Got it, you know, lives in a penthouse. And it, they're like computers reading this stuff in. And so curiosity is a, is a tool. Okay, curiosity is a tool. Um, curiosity, uh, right down the front of your film, you want the audience to start asking questions, okay? So often you give them a question to ask. So right down the front of the film, you're going to see tonight the verdict. You have a little mysterious scene where he, um, he suddenly, you know, we have him typing out this note from a judge, you know, he's typing the note, sticks it on his door, and the audience saying, what's that all about? Okay? When you have an action happen that you don't explain, you create curiosity. Now, the thing to remember is, of course, you must, <laughs> you must pay this off. You must, you must answer the question set up, or else the audience get really mad and say, we don't trust you. The worst thing that can happen to you is when the audience say, we don't trust you. And, um, and remember what I said about this, that, that the better a filmmaker you are, the deeper the contract you've made. So if the audience reach a point very early in the film where they say, we trust anything <coughs> you are going to do, because we, we know you're a great writer, we know you're a great filmmaker. By the way, the audience don't think writers exist. They think actors make it up as they go along, of course. I mean, that's, that's not literally true, but that's how they experience it. They're not sitting there saying, this was written. <laughs> and that's one of the pains of being a writer. No one thinks you exist. Okay. Um, so, um, curiosity is a powerful tool, but it's like surprise, it's minor on the great scale of things. It's a little tool, and you can, and you, you can use it a bit, but really, it's, it's, it's minor. A far greater tool, which we've mentioned, is suspense. Um, somewhere between the two is anticipation. Some people confuse anticipation for suspense, okay? Um, so I've heard great script doctors talk about, say, in Jaws, how anticipation is set up. In other words, you see very little chomping of legs in Jaws, but throughout the film, the audience is dread. Remember the, the hope-fear axis? The, the audience's dread is that this shark's going to suddenly reappear and we're going to have some munching, okay? So, and they call that, some, some uh, I've heard script, um, script teachers and structure teachers call that anticipation. I don't think so. That's suspense, okay? That's much more powerful than anticipation. Anticipation is when, is suspense without the element of dread. Where there's an element of dread, then you're dealing with suspense, okay? When there's a, a, a anticipation can have anxiety in it, but, but when there's deep anxiety in it, you're dealing with suspense, okay? So there's curiosity, anticipation, and suspense, and, and, and those are the hierarchies. Suspense is by far the most powerful. Anticipation is more powerful than curiosity because the audience will stay in the film longer than for curiosity, uh, just as suspense is more powerful than surprise. The echo I sort of understand. Why it's called a tagline, I have no idea. Makes no sense to me. Uh, what, what an echo is, is where you have an event or an incident or a statement, a line, tagline. Character says something. That is repeated at another part of the film. It may be repeated several times, okay? And the purpose or, or the great power uh, of this 
is it, it, it shows, it reveals to the audience, it reminds the audience of how much the character has changed since the last time this happened. Okay? So it's a very, very useful device. It's, um, it's slightly like a refrain in poetry, but with all the power that refrain doesn't have okay, in poetry. Refrain in poetry is, is emotionally powerful, but this is quite different. It, it, has the, it has the dimension of revealing character growth, okay, of, of putting that in front of the audience in a very, very concrete way. Not that they see it, of course, consciously. They never see anything consciously. Um, it goes from the, the sublime to the ridiculous, okay? And um, there's one in a, a film that I'm not going to talk about much called The Firm. And, you know, The Firm with Tom Cruise. And, and here he is, he comes to Memphis. He's on top of the world. He's been chosen by this big law firm. Um, he's the, the bright, the boy of his class and so on. And here he is. And he's in the streets of Memphis with his wife. And a street acrobat whizzes up to them doing backflips. You remember? Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely moment. And Tom Cruise starts to do backflips with him. Do you remember that? Um, and then about 30 minutes later in the film, or whenever it is, uh, when his world is crashing about him, He's walking through the streets of Memphis in the pouring rain, and the street acrobat flips up to him, and he doesn't even notice him. He just walks past. And it's an echo. It's a, ta it's a tag scene. It's, it's where, where the audience actually see he's been here before, and this was how he was, and this is how he felt, and this is, he was so happy and free, and now look at him. He doesn't even notice the guy. He's so pulled down into the pit. So it's a way of monitoring the hero's journey. Okay, it's a very powerful visual. It's powerful because it's visual, usually. Um, if it's spoken, it's still powerful, but it's, it's sometimes not as powerful as, as the visual. Okay, so it's a tagline, and it's a, it's a very, very powerful thing. Now, tag scenes are exactly the same thing, where a scene is repeated uh, a whole scene is, is, in a sense, repeated. Not word for word, it's, it's, it's done differently. So tell me in Kramer versus Kramer the three scenes that are repeated. Excellent. Good. The breakfast scenes. Perfect. These are tag scenes, okay? And the first one, of course, we've talked about, which is the disaster and the, milk, uh, and the French toast, okay? The, later, the next one is they're a team, they're... Uh, they're getting it together, they're working in harmony. And then the third one is full of pathos because it's, it's right before the mother's coming to take the little boy away and the father's trying to prepare him for that event. And each of these scenes tells you about their journey, it tells you about the father's journey, it tells you about the relationship between them. And because they're breakfast, in other words, it wouldn't have been the same if it had been a different meal. It wouldn't have had as much power. But because it's the same meal, you are able to see very clearly the progression. Okay, very good.